Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to provide a little rejoinder from part one and part two, and it looks like it might even be part three, for our interview with Dr. Christopher Palmer. And I hope some of you will remember in part one some of the stunning family revelations that he talked about his father and how his, he, his father went from bedridden to up and exercising. And given the nature of their situation specifically, that he went then into a nursing home to have independent care. And he was now a a normal functioning person. He went back to having carbs, which eventually made him bedridden. And within a year of getting off of keto, he had passed away. That was an incredibly tragic story. I wasn't expecting that and talking to uh, Chris. And so it took my breath away in that. And it's, it, it speaks though to a bigger point that comes out as we talked about in part one is there's a degree of personal responsibility of paying attention to how you are doing your lifestyle. Now we're specifically talking about diet, of course. And I'll go back and, he, and, and talk about how Dr. Palmer himself got into Atkins 20 years ago and his story about blood work and so on and so forth. And he was really trying to do the low fat and non-fat aspect and how it didn't work out. Uh, tremendous testimony, personally. So now we're moving away from that, a moving story. And by the way, he talked about uh, Nora Volkov, who is the head of the, I forgot the department, but basically has to do with uh, addiction and the work that she's working on right now of keto to alcoholics. And remember the alcoholics and taking in alcohol increases acetone. Acetone is one of the three ketones and that immediately goes to the brain and the brain uses that as energy. And how that tends to tip the fuel consumption of brain, of neurons in the brain towards acetone. And consequently, the efficiency of using glucose becomes less and less efficient. In other words, insulin resistance starts to increase. And so there's a predisposition and towards all that. And therefore, with alcoholics, you have higher rates of dementia and so on and so forth. So that was fascinating as well. So part two, 
is going to go into things that are now a little more clinical, but it's going to take your breath away as well. So let me give you a little background on the epilepsy. Remember we talked about epilepsy way back when, and that is the genesis, that is the reason that the ketogenic diet came into being. They found that with the fasting protocols, and that's all there was before the ketogenic diet, that, hmm, isn't that interesting? After a three-week 100% fast, other than just water, that some epilepsy actually disappeared completely. Everybody had reduced seizures while they were fasting. So along comes the beginning of the the ketogenic diet. Well, that whole idea that you can treat something metabolically, now what do we mean we're treating something metabolically? We're meaning we're treating something that's changeable, something that has to do with the mitochondria, glucose metabolism. So the fact that you're not stamped with, you're always going to have this, that there's this other variable that somehow your metabolism or the epileptic metabolism is something that can be modified to the point that one no longer has epilepsy. Enter the ketogenic diet. So the reason I'm saying that, I'm trying to thread the same needle in terms of perspective because Dr. Palmer is going to be talking about mental disorders such as schizophrenia and bipolar and a few others that really have a high correlation with diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Now, you remember that those three, diabetes, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and a lot of others really come from a poor ability to handle blood sugars, high insulin, and so on and so forth. But it has to do, it starts with elevated blood glucose, whether it's dietary or something else. And that's the beginning of it. That's the genesis of this whole long line of dysfunction. Well, in that, he he made certain correlations. He will make certain correlations that you will hear that there is a higher incidence of those who are schizophrenic in terms of being either insulin resistance and or diabetic, et cetera, et cetera. And the incidence of severe depression and that effect, not effect, but that correlation with blood sugar problems. So it's very fascinating. So this whole other thing of the diabetes, the obesity, the cardiovascular, that's the metabolic part. When somebody is stamped with a mental disorder such as schizophrenia and bipolar, there's a degree of shame in having that diagnosis because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I have some sort of weirdness about me, some sort of deformity in essence. I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say that. But that's the feeling of it. Well, actually, it may be right up there with epilepsy. In other words, it may be the mental disorder equivalent of epilepsy because often some of these medic- some of these disorders are treated with epileptic medications. Isn't that interesting? So some of the schizophrenic and the bipolar and other mental disorders are treated with the same medications that you would treat for epilepsy. Now we know that epilepsy is helped. A lot of people are helped with the ketogenic diet and its variations for epilepsy. Now the door is being opened to, well, why couldn't that happen with these mental disorders? Funny. So he goes into the correlations of that, and this is where his passion lies right now. He's bringing the ketogenic diet to the mental disorders, and boy, does that take your breath away. It's all very, very exciting. I hope you look forward to it as much as I do. And I I have to say this, and I hope you have the same perspective of me. Don't you feel like when Dr. Palmer is talking to you that he's your buddy? 
you know, he's just, you're sitting down on a park bench and you're having a fascinating conversation. I mean, this is certainly how I received this and then certainly how I participated in this, but um, it was total joy. So with that, enjoy this as much as I did and as much as I do and listen to it again. Take care. Bye-bye. But yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that whole interface between muscle and blood sugar, if that's what we're going to look at or without even getting into the detox aspect. Uh, is a big, big deal. And, uh, you know, it's it's easy to talk about diet, maybe not that easy, but it's harder to talk about exercise to an, a non-exercising group. You know, if, if people are grew up, you know, being high school uh, athletics, I won't say athlete, then it's easy to bring them back to that state. If they were never an exerciser, you're going, so um, what do you think about the gym? <laughs> what do you think about a walk? What do you think about, you know, exceeding that aspect it's almost a it's it's almost harder than uh bringing in a diet i'm sure you probably know but it sounds like it's part of who you are by the way it's so it's interesting that you bring that up because so when i was a kid you know i grew up in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and when i was a kid i was on a very high carb diet you know pop tarts for breakfast cereal for breakfast add some sugar to that cereal why not it tastes better sandwiches for dinner, mac and cheese, whatever. And I never exercised once. I was like the biggest scrawny geek, um, nerd. I, I was so uncoordinated, could, couldn't, couldn't, could not do one pull-up, could not do one pull-up. There was this thing called the presidential fitness test. Yeah. Yeah. that we had to do. And that was always humiliation. Like the humiliation day for me was, and so I found exercise, started getting into exercise probably about when I was in college. One of the, one of the points that I like to make about the ketogenic diet and, yeah. and exercise is that, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people who say, I hate exercise, I'm not doing it. When I talk to them, I can usually get into their mindset like, yeah, I get it. You're burned out. You're fried. You, you barely have energy to do the things you have to do. Who wants to add something more? Who wants to, just adding anything to your schedule is going to be painful enough. But adding something where you actually have to exert yourself physically, you're exhausted already. You're not sleeping well. You don't have energy. Yeah, I get it. And The thing is, is that when people do a low-carb or a ketogenic diet, they get more energy. They get more motivation. And so a lot of times, I think people are kind of subclinically depressed Mm -hmm. or, or lethargic or whatever when they're eating a crappy diet. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of them, I think for a lot of them, the real key is to eat a low carb or a ketogenic diet so that their energy levels come up and then they can start exercising. I've actually had several patients who've told me that, who um, one woman in particular, very smart woman, chronically depressed, kind of laughed at me for a long period of time, over two years. I kept trying to get her to exercise and she wouldn't do it. We were trying all sorts of medications, all sorts of different psychotherapies, group therapies, all these things. She was getting consultations. She was in and out of hospitals and other than not getting better. I kept trying to get her to exercise, couldn't do it. I finally got her to do a ketogenic diet. 
And she came in and spontaneously says, guess what I did? I joined a gym (laughs) because I finally feel like I can do that. I have enough energy. I have enough motivation. I feel like I can do that. So it's important. It's important to kind of look at what's the chicken and what's the egg. Yeah, no, very much so. Very much so. Uh, it was interesting. I spent a couple of days up with Dr. Westman in his clinic. He was very generous to offer that and talk about a lot of patients that go through. And you see some people who have picked up on that. You know, it just opens a whole door and it naturally comes. You know, you know, you told that woman, but it's interesting with that energy, people then want to go do something with it. And exercise is usually the the manifestation of that, which is pretty interesting. Good. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to, you know, where you're where I think you're breaking new ground. You talked about your case of Michael, I think his name was, that you shared with uh, all of us down there. And you had a couple of cases, but it was neat that you brought this term, which is now used a lot, just like we have metabolic syndrome, there used to be syndrome X and so on and so forth, but saying, hey, schizophrenia and bipolar, why not say they're, they're, they're physical? So they're not just mental, as you were saying. Um, they're physical, but you know, why not call them metabolic or why not consider the possibility that they're metabolic? And so when you put that word there, what I hear, I mean, I've heard that word for the last 30 years is that especially at some of the functional medicine conferences that it's adjustable. You can get in there. There's something you can do. If there's metabolism there. We can get in there and quote unquote, correct it or improve it in some way. How do you see that when you use that word metabolic? Hey, let's say it is a metabolic um, condition. And therefore that means what to to me, or what the, what does that mean to you by by placing it there? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. You know, most people think of they think of psychiatric disorders in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think there are there are some big kind of buckets that different people kind of uh, fall into, and in the way they think about mental disorders. So one way is you know. Things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorders, oh, those are genetic disorders mm-hmm. and they're chemical imbalances. It's a chemical imbalance in the person's brain and they need medication to correct that chemical imbalance. No ifs, ands, or buts. Exercise isn't going to do shit for those people. Um, talk and, even talk therapy isn't going to do shit for those people. They have a chemical imbalance and they need to take medication to correct that chemical imbalance. So that's one perspective. There's another perspective, depending on what mental disorders we're talking about. If we start talking about chronic depression or chronic anxiety, certainly there are some people in that bucket. They have a, they have a chemical imbalance in their brain. They need medication. But then there are other groups of people who just look at them and think they're wimps. You know, they, they need to suck it up. They're just whiners. They're complainers. They're looking for a free ride. They want disability. They, you know, whatever. Regardless of which, even which bucket you put mental disorders into, mental disorders, for better or worse, are horribly stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what type of disorder you have, how people think about your disorder, people are terribly ashamed of having a mental disorder. It's the one, it's one of the rare groups of disorders in medicine. I I can't say it's the only one, but it's, it's one of the rare groups of disorders in medicine where by and large people are still pretty silent about. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of clinicians and people and the general public think about mental disorders as chemical imbalance or whiners complainers. There's a third possibility, and this third possibility is really based on a lot of epidemiology evidence that we have, but this third possibility is also based on a lot of cutting-edge neuroscience research that's happening right now, and that is the possibility that mental disorders may in fact be metabolic disorders. Almost no one thinks about them in that way other than the cutting-edge researchers doing this cutting-edge research. Um, <laughs> like yourself. But almost no one thinks about it th that way. But So some quick statistics to at least just get people thinking mm -hmm. about why, why they should even consider that as a possibility are that diabetes and insulin resistance are rampant. They are epidemic in the mental health community. So in, pe in people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, they are three times as likely as the general population to develop diabetes. And of interest, when they present with their illness, when they are 18 years old and present with a new onset psychotic episode or manic episode, they are usually thin. They're not overweight or obese yet. Mm -hmm. But they already have insulin resistance that we can measure. And the insulin resistance in particular is very pronounced in their brains. And the really fascinating thing is people, you know, people used to think that the brain doesn't have insulin receptors. We used to, that right. it was what was taught in anatomy and physiology classes. Right. In fact, that's been proven wrong. Um, the brain does have insulin receptors, but those insulin receptors are actually slightly different than the insulin receptors in your periphery. And so it turns out that there are people who can be insulin resistant much more so in their brains than in the periphery. And so there's a possibility that that is playing a role in the development of mental disorders. People with mental disorders, on average, die 10 to 20 years earlier than people without mental disorders. And the cause of death, although suicide accounts for some of those deaths, the cause of death, number one cause of death is cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And number two cause of death is cancer which are both known to be related to yeah. metabolic disorders. Absolutely. People with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, again, they come in thin. And if you follow them for 20 years, as some researchers did, two-thirds of the people with schizophrenia were obese after 20 years. And over 50% of the people diagnosed with bipolar disorder were obese. Now, that's not overweight and obese, because I know the statistics for the United States are like anywhere 70, 80% of the United States population is overweight or obese. Right. The, ma the majority are simply overweight. They're not obese. And um, with this population, the majority are obese. The, the epidemic of overweight and obesity is beyond compare with even that of the general population and the standard American diet. Right. And 
it turns out that if you look at people with metabolic disorders, so if you if you go into a clinic of people with diabetes, they are much, much more likely to have major depression. Um, and when they get major depression, they it, the major depression lasts a lot longer than it does in other people. And the presence of major depression makes their blood sugars worse. Mm -hmm. It makes their hemoglobin A1C worse. It makes it, it it increases the probability that they are going to have vascular complications. If I go to instead a cardiac floor of a hospital and I look at patients who have just had heart attacks, if I take two patients who have identical risk factors, they're pretty much the same weight. They're, they were both smokers or not smokers. They, they have similar lipid profiles. If one has major depression and the other one does not, the one with major depression is twice as likely to have another heart attack in the next year as the one who does not have major depression. Wow. And so there, there's a lot of evidence. This is everything I've just said is incontrovertible. We have massive studies in all of these different populations documenting the bi-directional relationship of metabolic disorders, things like obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, and mental disorders. And you can mix and match. You can go any direction you want. You can start with psychiatric patients and look for metabolic disorders. You can start with metabolic disordered patients and look for psychiatric. And there's no question that they are interrelated. Um, and so it's not necessarily far-fetched to think that, oh, there, there might actually be something there. Mm -hmm. um, so the most common interpretation, unfortunately, is that met people with mental disorders are lazy slackers and they're, they're eating comfort foods. They, they're depressed or psychotic. So they go home, they sit on the couch and they eat a bag of chips and then a whole package of, you know, cookies. But again, when you, when you look at their brain scans, when you look at the way they came in, they weren't doing that before their first psychotic break, before their first manic break. Right. And so when you really look at all of the evidence, it's pretty compelling that people with mental disorders have abnormalities in metabolism. And so when we look at their brain scans, we actually know that they, their mitochondria are producing less energy than normal people's mitochondria are producing for some reason. Their cells are more insulin resistant than other people's. They have higher levels of reactive oxygen species, mm -hmm. which is a, a source of inflammation, but is also a sign of a metabolic disturbance. They have much higher levels of all of those things than people without the disorders. And so, interestingly, if you study people with epilepsy, the same deal, right? All pretty much all of the same findings, and so I think one of the really fascinating things is that we know from you know many decades of rigorous research, but we know from over a hundred years of clinical experience that the ketogenic diet can stop seizures, right. 
and that the ketogenic diet can actually stop epilepsy. It can take somebody who's seizing multiple times a day and put their epilepsy into remission. Amazing. Yeah. And some people are so lucky that they can do the diet for only three or four years, stop the ketogenic diet, and remain seizure-free for the rest of their life. And so the ketogenic diet clearly is doing something for epilepsy. And I think that is pretty much incontrovertible. There was a Cochrane review that came out in 2016 looking at all of the evidence, Mm -hmm. and they absolutely concluded that this is real, that there's adequate, good, rigorous evidence to demonstrate that this diet can, in fact, stop seizures, at least in some people. Um, And so interestingly, the treatments that we use in epilepsy are have a end up getting commonly used in psychiatry. So psychiatrists, we use a lot of Depakote. We use a lot of Tegretol, Topamax, Lamictal or Lamotrigine, all the benzodiazepines. Right. Epilepsy doctors, gabapentin, neurontin, epilepsy doctors, and psychiatric doctors are using the exact same medications for treatments that we call different things. But when we look at the brains of people with epilepsy and look at their metabolic defects, and when we look at the brains of people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and look at their metabolic defects, there's a lot of overlap between those defects. Now, there's no question that having a seizure is different than having psychosis. Mm-hmm. And I, do, I don't mean to imply that there's no difference between the disorders. There clearly are differences between the disorders. Um, and yet the treatments that work for one set of disorders also work for these others. And to me, that is the basis for my saying it's not that far-fetched. Mm-hmm. to think that maybe the ketogenic diet could also have an effect on people with serious, chronic, treatment-resistant psychiatric disorders. I'd have to agree, just listening to you and, and other people, but it seems more and more it's like all roads lead to the ketogenic diet. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I don't want to go there. That, that list you put up of all these things that people allege that it could be improved, you know, the claims, um, it gets to be a long list. And uh, talking to Dr. Westman about that. But I was thinking, do you see the ketogenic diet as being kind of the low-hanging fruit of, well, this is the, this, or the elephant in the room, whatever analogy you want to use, saying this is kind of the thing that we can get behind that will create the biggest improvement to the, the degree that it is actually implemented. And then let's put other you know, minor therapies behind it to reinforce it. Is that what you see? I mean, this is, this is becoming more and more such a force address this first, as opposed to, my, so my background is a naturopathic. I have a colleague that uh, works in Lexington, which I think is the area you live in. And it's to look at nutritional deficiencies and these other contributing factors. And, and to that, like a little sub breakout is the idea of even in the keto of trying to have it be real food versus processed food, because there's a lot of junk that comes in into the processed food. And I kind of 
revert back to the whole addiction idea with uh, uh, Nora's work. That you yeah. What, what are your thoughts on those? So do you see, yep, this is, you know, it's, you can't claim it yet. It's still the cutting edge, but you know, gosh, you have this thing here that we're going to call it diet. We have the whole, you know, a century of work on epilepsy. And uh, even there, it shows that it changed neurotransmitters. You know, GABA is, you know, increased and therefore it makes you want to say, so what's the relationship between GABA and insulin or GABA and dopamine or GABA, you know, and you go in that direction. I go back to the beginning. Do you sort of see this is the biggest stone to move? And after that, we can tweak it or see who is willing to implement it or, or not. I mean, it, I, I do. I, so, so in my mind, you know, I think that more research is definitely needed to kind of assess its efficacy and also assess any side effects or risks right. for patients with mental disorders. But one thing that I'll say is that in psychiatry, we, we are at a huge disadvantage to the rest of medicine and hmm. that um that by definition all of our disorders are of unknown etiology <laughs> yeah 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 as soon as a disorder has a known etiology even if it's causing psychosis even if it's causing paranoia, hallucinations, even if it's causing depression, even if it's causing cognitive impairment, as soon as we know an etiology, oh, this person has hypothyroidism, oh, this person has a brain infection, they have encephalopathy, mm -hmm. that person's no longer getting treated by a psychiatrist. That person's getting treated by a neurologist mm -hmm. or an infectious disease specialist. And those, those people are still treating the same brain they're treating the same symptoms but um but everybody feels like oh well we know what's causing this with 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 psychiatric disorders unfortunately again by definition we don't know what causes any of them and so one of the sad states of affairs for better or worse is that the overwhelming majority of people with chronic mental disorders are being treated with off-label treatments all the time. Yep. So anytime a patient with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder is treated with more than one mood stabilizer or more than one antipsychotic medication or more than two medications, period, I'm going to use an antipsychotic plus an antidepressant. I'm going to add a benzo. I'm going to add a sleeper. I'm going to add a little mood stabilizer to help stabilize their little right. aggressive outbursts. All of that is off-label treatment, meaning we don't have any evidence whatsoever that those cocktails that are so commonly prescribed to patients are effective let alone not dangerous. We have no evidence on any of that. And, and so in my mind, the way I think about and talk about the use of the ketogenic diet in psychiatric disorders is that it's on par with current standard of care. And on par with current standard of care is that when patients don't respond to an on-label treatment, which is 
way too common. Mm -hmm. um, we routinely go to off-label treatments. We start adding multiple antipsychotics. We start adding this and that and the other. Um, and that's off-label. So my use of the ketogenic diet with somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder is no different. Um, the ketogenic diet is an on-label, so to speak, treatment right. for, ep for epilepsy. We already know that. And psychiatrists routinely use epilepsy medications in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. And so it's not far-fetched at all to consider the use of the ketogenic diet for psychiatric disorders. Um, my hope, though, in addition to pursuing the work around the ketogenic diet as an effective intervention, mm -hmm. my bigger hope is to better understand this metabolic mental overlap. Because I think that will help us get closer to really, truly understanding what does cause mental illness. Right. What is, what is causing these disorders? And, and why is it that there is so much overlap mm -hmm. between mental and metabolic disorders? And what can we do to best help our patients? And so I think the ketogenic diet um, is absolutely one possibility. Exercise is, I'm a huge fan, even though I was a nerdy, geeky kid. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan and exercise is something I routinely prescribe for my patients as well. Um, and I'm going to say for the record, for full disclosure and honesty, those don't work for everyone. Right. I, I wish they did. Um, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm using these interventions in patients with serious treatment-resistant illness and Dishearteningly and sadly, it's not the miracle cure for mm -hmm. every single human being on the planet. Right. It has been a miracle cure for some. There, I, I'm. I I won't say more, but I'm about to release a new paper through Schizophrenia Research. So stay tuned within within, within a couple weeks. Um, that should be released. Um, and uh, and. There are a couple of case reports, and they're simply case reports, but they're significant enough to provide a tremendous amount of hope to our field and a tremendous amount of hope to people who are suffering that maybe it's not too late even for you, even for your brain. Right. Um, there's a theme there. It's certainly, you know, when you talk to Dr. Cunane, it's a whole different sort of the Alzheimer's, but he's the, the keto uh, PET scan, if I can use that word. I mean, and, and so uh, rescuing the brain is what he uses for mild cognitive impairment. And, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot of squiggle room there. So no, we're not, we're not uh, killed under a particular diagnosis, so to say. What, when I listen to you, you do remind me of talking to Dr. Westman, because I see a, as a logical sort of extension of the conversation, and he would actually articulate it, is that I do see a do we call it rehabilitative medicine? Do we call it a, uh, a supported care institute for or keto? Call it ketogenic, call it uh, ketogenic medicine for psychiatric disorders or something like that. That is a place. It, 
and before maybe it's a place, it's a specialty that is named and identified that, you know, begins in this particular uh, work. And, and, and then we get to go further with what has changed and the percentages that respond and don't respond and get to learn how to differentiate. But do you see something like that? I mean, this is, it almost seems to be the next paragraph. I do. I'm, um, I dream of the day when there is a residential treatment program that I can send my patients mm. um, that will help them do this diet in a safe environment to see if this diet will work for them, that will support a lot of other things that will probably help in their recovery, things like exercise, things like improving sleep, things like psychotherapy, things like helping them find some kind of meaning and purpose in their life, a reason to be alive, a reason to go on. I think for my dad, whom I talked about, that was the thing that was missing. He didn't have meaning and purpose. He looked at his life as being over and simply walking for the sake of walking wasn't enough. And, um, And so meaning and purpose is actually really important. And it's hard to feel healthy when you when you lack that. Right. But I dream of the day when we have treatment centers like that that uh, that I could have sent my father to with it for his diabetes. That but that I can send my psychiatric patients to because it's an intensive treatment. It takes a lot of education. It takes a lot of work, and there are some dangers. I do see some patients getting hypomanic and manic within the first month of the treatment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that needs to be managed in a safe and effective way. But honestly, I am filled with hope mm-hmm. because especially for people with schizophrenia, the paradigm up until now has been that they have a really crappy, chronic, chemical imbalance. Nobody knows what to do. Their lives are ruined. Their lives are devastated. I have seen patients cry because they just want to have a job. They just want to work. They want to have some self-respect. They want to be a productive citizen in our society. They are begging for that opportunity. And yet when they get a job, their paranoia gets worse, their hallucinations get worse. And sure enough, they get fired or laid off or they quit because they can't take it. And that, let alone... If you look at our prison systems, they're filled with mentally ill people. If you look at the homeless population, the people on the street living in cold, living in just squalor, they have mental disorders. And the, the biggest hope in my mind is that we might have a game-changing new way of thinking about and addressing those disorders that have ruined lives that up until now people have been utterly hopeless about. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I thought I would take a moment of your time 
to tell you about something that we've been working on for a long time. And that is our product of C8 Keto MCT oil. How is it different and why would you even care about it? It's the highest purity you can find in the market, which is 99.7% caprylic acid triglyceride. And by the way, that's backed up by a certificate of analysis. It's not just me making up these numbers. But I think the bigger story behind our C8 MCT oil is not only that it is the most efficient way for you to create ketones naturally, and that is all three ketones, your beta-hydroxybutyrate, your acetoacetate, and your acetone. That's important. But the other part is it supports sustainably harvested palm oil. Why would you care? Because all the other C8 oil products out there, not the MCT oils, but the C8 MCT oils, some people call them ketogenic oils out there, they come from palm oil. And palm farming, specifically palm kernel farming in Southeast Asia, is decimating the rainforest there. Absolutely. You go on right now to Google or to YouTube and say palm oil Southeast Asia and you will be in tears at the end of 10 minutes when you see the destruction that's happening. This is not part of that. This is the exception. So it's called RSPO, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. You have to apply for it. You have to be audited by them. And it's a long, rigorous process. And it took us two years to bring this product to market. I hope you care. And I know you'll care about the efficiency in which it helps you make ketones. By the way, we don't drink this like it's a fluid. We put a little bit in our coffee. We make our mayonnaise out of it. We make uh, various salad dressings out of it when we have a salad. It's basically a, I hate to say crutch, but it's my aid to keeping me in ketosis when I want to be in ketosis. It's fast. It's long lasting, certainly long, longer lasting than exogenous ketones and much more holistic, as I mentioned, with all three ketones. That's about as much as I want to say. I hope you look into it. I hope you uh, take your ketones readings on a regular basis, as along with your glucose. If you do, then you really value this product. All the best, and I thought you should know.